good day everyone and welcome to another episode of Left After Breakfast, broadcast from 3CR, your only radio left. Susanna here with you and I'll be joined by other members of my Left After Breakfast team as the program continues. Your favourites for a start. So welcome to regular listeners and indeed to anyone who has just tuned in. Good on you. We have a full house in this episode of Left After Breakfast. We will get into the NACC, the National Anti-Corruption Commission. And while the BL from the bush will talk about fire, I'll talk about water. Glenn will tell us about Robin Hood. Then there's the story of an almost 40-year-old song tracked down by 3CR and by one enthusiastic listener. And of course, I'll ferret out the oh-so-elusive bagman for you. He'll be recounting tales from his earlier life. You could say his memoirs. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, I'll start with a little music. A little light music. I'm going to play you a wobbly song from the International Workers of the World. Oh, about 1901. Forlorn and hungry Are there lots of things you lack? Is your life made up of misery? Then dump the bosses off your back Are your clothes all patched and tattered? Are you living in a shack? Would you have your troubles scattered? Then dump the buses off your back. And dump 
the bosses of your back. Attorney General Mark Dreyfus introduced the National Anti-Corruption Commission Bill just a couple of days ago. It's the first time anyone saw it. It will be led by a commissioner and up to three deputy commissioners and they will have security of tenure. The commissioner will serve one fixed term of five years but deputies will be able to serve two terms. So if you're expecting any fast results from this commission, well, it won't be coming soon. The NAWC has a broad jurisdiction to investigate Commonwealth ministers, parliamentarians, staff, the heads and employees of Commonwealth agencies, government contractors and their employees, Defence Force members, statutory office holders and appointees, officers and directors of Commonwealth companies and people or bodies providing services, exercising powers or performing functions on behalf of the Commonwealth. It will be able to investigate both criminal and non-criminal corrupt conduct such as abuse of office, breach of public trust and misuse of information. It can investigate conduct occurring before its establishment so that means the powers of the NAWC are retrospective. Now we look at third parties. The definition of corrupt conduct includes that of any person, whether or not a public official, that adversely affects or could adversely affect the honest or impartial of a public official's powers or duties. So they can investigate entities without government contracts, like political donors or those seeking to corrupt government decisions. The Commission will be able to begin inquiries on its own initiative or in response to referrals from anyone, including members of the public and whistleblowers. Referrals can be anonymous. So there you go, listener. If you've got anything the Commission should know, let them. The Commission will be able to compel production of documents or information, obtain a warrant to enter and search premises, enter certain Commonwealth premises without a search warrant, seize evidence and exercise limited powers of arrest to ensure attendance at a hearing. It will also have covert investigative powers such as telecommunications interception powers and the ability to use surveillance devices. Most of the Commission's hearings will be in private. However, the Commissioner may decide to hold public hearing if he or she is satisfied that exceptional circumstances justify it and that it's in the public interest to do so. The Commission will be able to make findings of facts in reports, including findings of corrupt conduct, but not to make determinations of criminal liability but they can refer evidence of alleged criminal conduct to appropriate agencies, such as the Commonwealth Director of Public Prosecutions. I'm not sure about the exceptional circumstances. It's not very helpful. I believe the Independent Commission should be able to make hearings public. If they believe it's in the public interest, then they should not be constrained to do so only in exceptional circumstances. 
I mean, anyone can claim exceptional circumstances, can't they? 3CR I really think the main reason people here in Australia want an anti-corruption commission is that they're disgusted at the corrupt behaviour of the previous government, the now opposition. And I would really like that commission to take a form that terrifies the buggers. So I think that Peter Dutton's approval is a bad sign for the new body. But another thing, another thing, why is the ABC still treating Dutton and company like the government? They're not the government, mate, they're not. I mean, for a news organisation, they're pretty slow on the uptake. I suspect the ABC is doing this because they have remade themselves in that image. The long-term effect of changing the organisational leadership and coercing the editorial staff. And I was in disbelief, utter disbelief the other day, and I had to leave the room, when I realised that Four Corners really was showing a programme featuring Peter Dutton. When you think that Albanese was opposition leader for two and a half years and hardly got a mention, much less an interview, and what we saw with Dutton's appearance on Four Corners was a makeover for the leader of a rump of a demolished party and he was getting the royal treatment. I mean, seriously, that is... Well, and even when Albo became PM, the press was much more interested in how the LNP were feeling. How are they feeling, the poor chaps? They've lost an election. Oh, poor things. Let's hold their hand. An important question here, though. Why is the ABC and the Australian Financial Review, why are they referring to the government as Labour? For example, headlines titled Labour Urged. Shouldn't that be Government Urged? I mean, under Morrison, would we have headlines like Liberal Party Urged? No, we wouldn't. It really comes down to those... What else can I call them but talking dummies in the shop front windows of media barons? The shiny and tarted up functionaries of the bourgeois capitalist press. They can't translate their prejudices. They can't sever their emotional connections with the previous regime. And it contradicts their grandiose marketing claims. Their claims of always maintaining superior discipline over what they falsely frame as a balanced objective discourse. It's a lie. Ah, good morning, you're listening to 3CR, the only radio left. You are indeed listening to 3CR. I'm Susanna and you just heard the bagman giving a station identification. I hope to catch up with him today. I'm sure that he's back from the mystical lands of the east, floating down the Nile on a barge. Half his luck. But I'll take a music break, as we call it in the radio business lingo, music break. It means I'm going to play a bit of music, listener.
I wanted to say something about water. I saw a photograph just a couple of days ago of a Second World War shipwreck that suddenly resurfaced from the shrinking river Po in Italy. It's not so much a relic of a forgotten past, but a reminder of a grim future facing Europe as global warming hits that continent's water supplies. The River Po flows around 650 kilometres from the Alps up in the northwest down to the Po Delta in the east before it ends up in the Adriatic Sea. But it's hardly had any rainfall in five months and is really beginning to dry up. Instead of nourishing that rich surrounding farmland that produces 40% of Italy's food, it's just become nothing more than a barren scar on a dried-up land. The government of Italy has declared a state of emergency in the five northern regions. Farmers say they're going to lose 60% of their rice harvest. Fields of crops have dried up, as have the grazing land for cows, whose milk is used to make the well-known Parmigiano-Reggiano, one of the nicest cheeses around. Well, you won't be getting any next year, listener. Wheat yields are forecast to drop by up to 40%, as also will the harvest of tomatoes and grapes. Let's you wine. But this isn't just an Italian catastrophe. In France, cities like Nantes and more than a 100 municipalities ran out of drinking water. The corn harvest is down 20%. There are milk shortages because there's no cattle fodder. And the worst of the drought is yet to come. Of course, Europe, of course, uh, cities turned off their decorative fountains because wildfires raged. In Germany, water levels in the Rhine dropped. Much of the river has become unable to be navigated. And Germany is full of industries that transport goods along that waterway. In Spain, the reservoir levels fell to an all-time low of 35%. Drought was declared in England in August. Drought in England, can you imagine? And the warnings are there. If global warming isn't reined in by cutting heat-trapping greenhouse gas emissions like now, immediately, if not sooner, these droughts will happen every year. Apart from the obvious effects of drought on plants and animals, widespread water scarcity affects energy production, industry, food production, biodiversity and population movements. With scarce water and high temperatures, we'll see people moving from Europe's hostile south to the north. More than one third of the population in southern Europe will have less water than they need. There's an idea, listener, a perception that we have that water is infinite and you can use it as much as you want without consequences. We're a little bit better with our water thinking in Australia, not so much with our water actions, but we understand that water is scarce. We know that water doesn't just fall out of the sky. But it's a complete worry when you know that we're going to see water refugees. So climate refugees will all be moving to the north of Europe. The world really has a choice of two directions, doesn't it? 
It can go towards conflict as we compete for resources or it can go the other way and get people to cooperate across international borders to try and conserve water to stop competition and warfare. And I mean warfare. There'll be water wars or we can all try and get together and do something about global warming. And here in Australia, an arid country, where I live in the state of Victoria, why is water in the hands of a private company that sells me water and you water for a profit? I mean, it's just total madness. It should not be in private hands. Water is a necessary part of our lives. And it should be a public asset. 3CR It's time to hear from Glenn, the 3CR resident historian. He's been visiting family a bit of late. And we've missed him on the program, but we hope to have him back soon. In the meantime, here is a popular excerpt of his that people often ask me about. And it is, yes, about a folk hero. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. Well, good morning again, Glenn. How are you, my dear? I'm terrific. Do you recall the old days when TV first arrived on Australian shores? The old. The old days when we first had TV in Australia. I do remember when we first had TV in Australia, yeah, because we had the first TV in my street. Did you know? And I had a lot of new friends that year. You would have. They came around to watch the test pattern with me. (laughs) The test pattern was a favourite all around Melbourne. The TV was, wasn't on from three o'clock till some rather, but there was a kiddie show on ABC and we'd watch the test pattern which, until you got the five, four, three, two, one or something, and then the kiddie show. But epilogue closed the day. Epilogue yes. Epilogue came on at midnight till it did. 8 a.m. or so, goodness. And there was a six o'clock news on there was Eric nine, Pierce I on think, Nine, I recall. But followed by, there's a coming under your bed. He was on Sunday mornings when I remember him. But he was after the news. He was on Sunday mornings for the wrestling on Channel 9. Uh, what was your favourite show when you were a kitty? The ABC Children's Show. Did you watch um, Did you watch Robin Hood? Riding through the Glen. That's the one. Robin Hood with his band of men, feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood. Yes, I liked Robin Hood. Do you know who made that series? Do you know the history of that series? History of the series? No. No, they were made in the UK by Sapphire Films. And Sapphire Films was set up in the UK by a woman called Hannah Weinstein. And she was an American communist. Yeah. She left America in the late 40s, the Cold War, and the House of Un-American Activities Committee being established. Oh, yeah. And she got away from America. She went to Paris, then to England, and the American Communist Party, the Hollywood branch, gave her money to make films. And one of the most famous series Sapphire films made was Robin Hood. Oh, right. 
Feared by the bad, loved by the good, robbed the rich to feed the poor. They also made films like William Tell as well. They made a whole lot of adventure films. And um, what... um, what uh, Hannah Weinstein did, she got a hold of script writers and stuff in the US who were blacklisted, who have lost their passports. And they were stuck in LA, Washington, New York, and she got them to write pseudonyms and paid them money for doing the scripts of these stories because they, they couldn't find work back in the US. Yeah. She created work in the UK for them by Robin Hood and these sort of shows. And um, we don't hear about Hannah Weinstein or her work, do we? William Tell. That's right, Hannah Weinstein and William Tell. South Park Films made a series of programs from the early 50s to the early 60s. And I think the two most famous I remember are Robin Hood and William Tell. And Hannah Weinstein was the producer. She was the brains behind it. William Tell was a revolutionary, wasn't he? That's right. But he's mainly remembered for shooting an apple off someone's head. Mm. Well, if you were Robin Hood, the uh, the rich, the rich were very... Uh, self-serving and they sort of acolyte sort of crawlers like the food chain and uh, the robbers the Robin Hood band I mean, they're, they're merry men and they fought the good fight against oppression and injustice and Robin Hood was a, a, a metaphor for fighting the good fight which you couldn't obviously say in the US could you or the UK or Australia they had a wise of these black band writers producing wonderful kid shows like Robin Hood and William Tell to, to, to throw our attention to offensive so, to against injustice and to fight against oppression I can't remember the actor's name. Uh, I think, if my memory is right, Richard Green. Richard Green, of course, it was Richard Green. He was the one. And another support of her. Have you heard of Christina Steed? Christina Steed, no. She was an Australian novelist. She was um, a contemporary of Jane Devaney, uh, Catherine Susanna Pritchard. Uh, Christina Steed wasn't a, a Communist Party member, she was a fellow traveller. But she wrote a lot of work also for Sapphire Films with Hannah Weinstein. And again, you've never heard of Hannah Weinstein. They've written out about history of these people. We don't hear their stories. And that's why in the past, this segment's been called Our Story, Bear Story, Your Story, His Story, Her Story. And we've forgotten these names. And they're part of our struggle. So Hannah Weinstein, Christina Steed, they were great thinkers for our cause. They're fighting depression and injustice. And again, where else up in three shall we hear these people being mentioned? Well, I'll certainly remember their names in future. Hannah Weinstein and Christina Steed. Christina is, of course, Australian, you said. She was, she was from Sydney. She, um, she went to Paris in the 1930s. She uh, spent, oh, time, luck. spent time in Spain in the Civil War. Um, she married Jack Blake, the communist. Um, then she was banned from returning to Australia. And she, uh, it was an award she lost. It was an award she should have received for her literary work. But because she was in Australia, she wasn't eligible to get it. You know how they stole... Um, who was the famous filmmaker who lost his... Um, Wolfie Birchall. You know how they stole his passport? Yes, yes. Similar to her. But they didn't steal her passport. So basically, you're not in Australia. So you won the award, but you're not here, so you're not going to get it. So they had ways of, you know, the blacklists in the US weren't in the US alone. The blacklists occurred here too. It's a bit like Christina Steed and various others who, falling suppression, had to pay a penalty. But they're important names for us to know. It's worrying though, Glenn, because that attitude towards journalists is here again. I suppose it never went away, but it was hidden and couldn't really come out and run rampant. Now I see journalists, good journalists, being sneered at, derided, and sued. Not just being sued, but being threatened also. We're seeing the rise of these 
these fascist mobs and um, journalists and television crews being threatened and assaulted and, at these rallies, these, these gatherings of Dunning-Kruger Nazis. And, um, yeah. I mean, we're living in scary times. And I suppose people like Christina Steed went through and um, Hannah Weinstein and the blacklisted rise in the US. It might happen again. And um, yeah, we've got some very unpleasant things happening in the world, my dear. Well, thank you for reminding me or actually letting me know about these these producers, these heroes. They were heroes. I said, and they use shows like Robin Hood, William Tell, to show how to fight oppression, but it's, it's real. But yeah, and the powers of rules, they're not wonderful people. They're slippery, sleazy characters. And these shows expose them in a, in a way which you can enjoy and appreciate. So, um, yeah, listeners, if you weren't tuned to 3 South today, you wouldn't know these stories. And you're listening here to Business Journal Duffy's Left After Breakfast. I'm Glenn, and um, I do a history segment on Susan's show, which is on Radio 3CR, 855 AM. And until I return, in the words of my forebears, Chocula. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. surprise really it's a blast from the past and I mean from the past a listener named Arthur was tuned in to 3CR a few years back quite a few years back and he heard a song that he really liked it was called Working Boots he liked that song so much that he came into the station to inquire where he could get a copy. Well, he couldn't get a copy. It was a one-off recording. I know, because it was recorded in my lounge room. So at the station, we ran him off a copy onto an audio cassette tape, and Arthur played it so often that finally it fell to pieces. Audio cassette tapes aren't really, really humongously durable. But I'm talking perhaps 1985. And you play that over and over <laughs> for such a long time. Well, it's a wonder it lasted at all. So Arthur couldn't get a copy. And of course, almost 40 years have passed since then. And there was no one at 3CR amongst the staff or the station workers 
who could even recall that song until one of them asked me and gave me Arthur's phone number and I got on to him and we had a chat about that song just to make sure it was the one he wanted. And yes, it was Working Boots by Neil Blake and it probably was 1985. And just by sheer chance, Neil did have a rusty old recording of it himself. And I'm going to play that today. And I'm going to warn you, listener, this is very old and very hissy and a lot of static in it. Well, as you can imagine. But here it is, a vintage classic. My Working Boots by Neil Blake. My working boots never get any thanks for the favours they do me. Yet they are no other task than to pamper my two feet. I've kicked them round several years through mud and slush and dung. And though my toes may be on the nose, they've always held their tongues. They bear their salt, push fires, cough, brave three corner jacks. Took the force as a matter of course off a blow. Me unscathed for all me working days Just to be kicked off and left out in the yard I'm glad I wasn't born to work at work, mate They sure get it hard I'm building sites, they have been in pipes Concrete bricks and paint. By roof and nail, they have been assailed and always without complaint. If I was them, if I was me, they'd be bloody hell to pay. If I didn't get a polish least once a month and a clean pair of socks each day. My working boots never get any thanks for favours they do me. Still they are no other task than to pamper my two feet. I kept me unscathed for me working days just having kicked off and left out in the yard. I'm glad I wasn't born to be working boots, mate. I sure get it. Oh my word, <laughs> Working Boots, written and performed by Neil Blake in a lounge room somewhere in Clifton Hill. Neil was very pleased to know that Arthur enjoyed his song and he's going to redo it and we'll re-record it 
and we'll get it to Arthur. And this time, not on an audio cassette, which may not last 35 or 36 or 7 or 8 years. So as soon as we can, we'll get that done for you, Arthur. But I was really moved myself by the community spirit of 3CR. The fact that someone can walk into the station inquiring about a song. Not just once, but a second time, nearly 40 years later, and still get assistance from us. And that's really what 3CR is about. It is 3CR Community Radio. Can you imagine walking into, say, 3AW or the ABC with a request like that? Somehow, I don't think so. Good on you, 3CR. And thank you, Arthur. And thank you, Neil. We'll go now to the BL from the bush. Given what's happening with global heating and warming and and the way that the environment is changing, the climate is really at its peak of devastation everywhere. This country especially has been devastated by fires as long as I've been around and prior to me, obviously. And yet governments don't seem to want to look at a long-term future for it. So here's a bit of an idea, listener, is that since 1997, it was the first Ericsson Sky Crane come out here, big water bombers that you may remember, the one was called Elvison or some other, these strange names. Back then, I just looked this up the other day, back then they were costing 1.5 million bucks for 12 weeks. Since then, we've had them here every year up until, I don't know if we got them here last year or whatever, but... The thing is now they're getting they're getting less and less reliable to um, to get because of the fires all over the world, or especially in America where they come from, is because the fires season over there is lasting you know eight six and eight months. You can't get them anymore. So here's a bit of an idea, listener, maybe that we here in Australia, like yeah, we keep hearing that we're the lucky country, we're the smart country. Well. How about we start getting some ideas from our manufacturers here or our big business and say, listen, how about we start making our own? We've got the technology here, surely. We've got the brains and people here to make our own. So with federal and state government funding, we start sticking a bit of a tax on some of these really multi-million dollar mining companies and stuff that are here. And we get ourselves a program up where we invite people would invite industry to submit plans for our own water bombers or our own fire prevention. We here have got some pretty smart people operating in this country, like the black box for planes was an Australian invention, closed bloody uh, rooftops over stadiums, that was another one. Just, just to mention, there's a whole heap, of just a couple that come to mind. I'm sure that, that if we put the word out, put business with government, and get this up and running, get the manufacturing in it. We can build our own. Therefore, that's white-collar work, that's the engineers and all that sort of stuff, building our own or make our own uh, to our own, own, own environmental needs. It could be done. And therefore, then the jobs that would flow from there is to manufacturing and to make them. Then we can train our pilots and the training sessions that come from there, and we could use those all around the uh, Straits of Australia. And we share the wear. And then when when we don't use them, we could do the same as what we've done. We could hire them out or whatever to other countries because 
you and I both know this that this uh, climate it's getting worse it's not going to get better so we need something now we need it before it, it, we can't get anything and we go back to you know to having nothing I just thought that that was a bit of an idea give old elbow a bit of a bit of a leg up there so listen my dad but we you know, there's, there's a few jobs for uh, for everyone and to get ourselves something that we're going to need. Thank you, BL from the bush. And now it's time for the bagman. Welcome him back. Well, good morning, bagman. How lovely to hear your voice. Oh, good morning, Susan. It's great to be back in the land of the Oz. Once again, uh, for people who don't know, I've been travelling down the Nile River in Egypt and I had a very, very good time. I bet you did. You better bet. You better believe that I did, Susan. Anyway, Susan, I want to do a series of articles before I shuffle off this mortal coil. And I'm going to start with one article uh, this week and I'll go on to another article next week about topless waitresses and topless bar attendants. That was a scourge of the liquor trade union uh, back in the 70s and 80s. And then I want to do another one about wage theft. Now, people may think that wage theft is a new phenomenon. Well, it's not, because it goes back 50 years at least. It goes back to time immemorial when employers were ripping off workers. Right. Anyway, Susan, I've been asked many, many times why I became political. Now, I'm not a politician, but you don't have to be a politician to become political. First of all, to dispel a few rooms, I was born at the Royal Women's Hospital in Carlton. Now, I went there because my mother was there at the same time. It was a breech birth, so I came out feet first. I hit the ground early and have been running in the right direction ever since, except for a few hairy bends along the way. Now, my working life began at the ripe old age of eight, selling the Afternoon Herald and the Sporting Globe outside the Royal Melbourne Showgrounds every Saturday night at the Red Hots, now Red Trots. It costs a threepence my brother Michael and I to catch the number 59 tram from our humble abode in Arden Street, North Melbourne, to the showground. But if we were loaded up with newspapers, the Connies left us on for nothing. And believe me, it was a hard slog for the first few hours, but always good for tips if punters had a good night. A bob here or two bob there in tips made the measly earnings seem like a king's ransom to eight- and ten-year-old boys swinging on the tram straps on the way home to our humble shack in the middle of kangaroo territory. I continued to sell newspapers, I flogged newspapers, for a number of right-wing newspaper moguls without being aware for a number of years until my political career was more refined. The turning point in my newspaper days was when I walked from Arden Street to the corner of Racecourse Road 
and Flemington every day, beginning at 6am, earning about seven shillings and sixpence for the whole week. Well, I tell you what, that was about the change on the 23rd of November when the news came through that the President of America, John F. Kennedy, had been assassinated. Well, you couldn't sell enough newspapers that day. We were totally run off our feet. Earning a princely sum that day of eight quid, I made a momentous decision that if a world leader was to be bumped off each week, I could live in the luxury only working-class lads could dream of. So I retired. I finished school. Retiring at the age of 13 was not a very smart move, and eight quid a day could only last so long. Hitting the skids at such a young age saw me take some wrong roads that would eventually lead me to today. My education was cut short. It seemed to continually have a succession of old men in long black robes and horse hair wigs wanting to advance my limited educational opportunities by offering me further education in government institutions. With parole, the only inducement to graduate. Now, getting back to the then work-class sport of AFL football, playing for 10 quid a game, or even less, if you lost, ruled our lives, living only 100 metres from the gasometer oval. Now, we were both to go on to uh, successful football careers with the Kangas. My brother played a number of games, unfortunately on the cusp of a brilliant career, I found the opposite sex. Now, I, I worked as an underage and illegal forklift driver on Melbourne Wars at the age of 15. My father was a wharfie, but I also worked in superior conditions because of the actions of militant unions, and I mean fair dinkum unions. Jobs came and went, due to the whims of those old blokes in black robes and my total disregard for authority. But I was on a steep learning curve. Another stint on parole culminated in employment at a winery, where after a short time I was elected shop steward of the Stormen and Packers Union. 1968 senior the Tramways Union Secretary, Clary O'Shea. Now, this was my first foray into militant union action. And believe me, my head could have exploded with pride when my factory joined in millions of workers striking in defence of trade union principles. Another hiccup in my understanding of what I became began to interpret as ruling-class law, sought me to seek alternative but a rewarding position at Carlton and United Breweries in Bouvery Street. Now, I was a still naive, raw young man. I was about to be ordered into the dark side of the moon. And can you believe this, Susan? 
can you believe this? Working in the nude in 1972. I had some, yes, I had something to look forward to. (laughs) Now, (laughs) the simple fact was the need to break a young man with working class ideas and a young man willing to challenge authority needed to be suppressed by the minions with some faux power in the management at Carlton and United Breweries. Every because every afternoon shift, I was required to enter the large kettles used to brew the beer and physically sweep the spent grain into a small hole in the corner. 20 minutes would have seen other shift workers, including me, entering the large kettles in 140 degrees centigrade, complete with gum boots, heavy overalls to begin the arduous task and complete it. It didn't always happen. Some workers fainted in the excessive heat. Some workers abandoned the overalls and worked in the nude. 1972 at Carlton and United Brewery. Didn't bear thinking about it. If you fell over in the knee-deep hot grain, kissing your ass goodbye was forever in your mind. But on one occasion, I stayed to sit down in the kettle until assurances, <laughs> assurances were given that no worker would ever be treated this way again. What 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 you organise is sit down in uh, the bloody hot grain? No, I'd swept the grain out into the little oh, tiny that's, hole. Oh, that's all right yeah. then. Ah, oh. yeah, and and I sat on the underpants, Susan, so that I didn't burn my lemonade and stuff. But of course, once I'd done this, stayed the solo sit there. I had to start with a list of demands because I wasn't going to come out. No workers, according to me, would ever have to work in the kettles without OH&S supervision. No worker would be required to go back to their original position without a proper break, a shower, clean overall, and a break of at least an hour. Now, this is where it becomes dramatic, Susan. A foreman, hearing of my demands, ordered the next hot brew to take place while I was sitting on the floor. Fortunately, can you believe that? Fortunately, (laughs) fortunately, wiser heads prevailed because I'm still here. As a part of my mini-episode, to come, I was also required to sweep out the, the silos, the, the grain silos. Now, you can imagine the Nilex silos in Richmond as an example of the size of the task. My now, God. <laughs> believe it or not, Susan, they found a fat man and a skinny boy from Brody to work in unison. Because I could fit into the hole in the silo and he was too fat to fall in. The job was to complete, to complete with the enormous size rats living at the bottom and to sweep the remnants of thousands of tonnes of dusty grain into another 
tiny hole. You must be thinking here, Susan. There's a theme here, tiny holes and skinny boys. But the theme was about to come to a screaming halt at the bottom of the silo because if you can understand this, Susan, a piece of rope was tied around my waist and the fat man up the top who couldn't fall in lowered me down to the bottom of the silos. At the bottom of the silo, I untied my rope. Finally, I was free of the makeshift shackles. It was probably getting too boring for the management, but I was sitting on the floor competing with the rats, but on the floor again, and I wasn't coming out and until they ceased this inhuman practice. It was lonely at the bottom with only rats for company, but after a few hours of talking with the management, saw the error of their ways and employed professional to do the job. Now, you know, Susan, that I went on to a successful career in the trade union movement and joined the liquor trade union and many other unions and went on to an international career. Now, I can tell your listeners, Susan, there are going to be more tales soon, but people will have to listen to your program, Susan Duffy's program, Left After Breakfast, on Community Radio 855 on the dial. Well, that was a plug, but thank you, comrade. Oh, I'm, thank you. Yeah. I'm still thinking about the giant bloody rats. <laughs> and believe me, Susan, the rats were big, but I got to carry a broom down there while the rope was tied around my uh, skinny guts, and I had something to fend the rats up with. No, but... it doesn't work. <laughs> believe me, that doesn't work. <laughs> I had a problem with the rat once in a house, and, yeah. you know, and I even you got uh, rid of him. Well, I even locked the cat into the kitchen overnight, <laughs> but, I, but I couldn't bear the sound of the cat scratching at the door and wailing to get oh. out. So I went in with the broom, and this bloody yep. rat stood up <laughs> on his hind leg. Yep, <laughs> stood up on his. He was ready to fight me. You know, and I thought, I'm not, look, a thing this size, if he's got that much gold, yeah. I'm not yeah. going to fight him. So I dropped the broom and I ran out. <laughs> oh, that's the way, Susan. Now, just a reminder, Susan, I want to remind people of the next series, which will take place next Friday, we hope, about the scourge that was came into the liquor trade union where they tried to make women work topless uh, behind the bar, topless waitresses, people in restaurants working topless. Now, it's a fad and it eventually was wiped out by, by the action of the Liquor Trade Union. But we've mentioned before, Susan, it became a fad about women having to wear or having to not wear tops in all variety of jobs, and believe it or not, there were topless sandwich makers. There were topless hardware workers. It was only with the, uh, the action of the Liquor Trade Union and the militant women who supported that action and the militant men at the Carlton United Brewery, where I'd hence came, who stopped beer to those establishments 
to make sure that they wiped out that insidious practice. I remember the time, yes. And it was fairly fraught with danger too, Susan, because there was the occasion where I had a gun held to my head. Rest assured I didn't give in, but uh, my uh, my underpants needed attention after that. Now, don't give everything away, Bagman. (laughs) This is for next week, you're going to tell me. That's for next week. And then we'll do... We were, I think we'll do a, uh, a series on wage theft. And as I said, wage theft is not new. And George Calambaris, although he may have underpaid his staff by something like $7 million, there was a whole raft of men in that industry that were continually ripping off their workers. That's at the present time. But 50 years ago, or 45 years ago, when I worked for the Liquor Trade Union, it was still an abhorrent practice then, and workers were being ripped off by buses. Something to look forward to, Susan. Yes, it is indeed something to look forward to. <laughs> well, Bagman, you must be really tired. I know you are after your eventful... I suffer, yeah, I suffer jet lag, Susan. I must, uh, I must admit that, and believe me, Egypt is not famous for fine wines. So I didn't indulge a great deal. So on that note, Susan, why don't we go out the same old way? Why not? Dare to struggle. Dare to win. If you don't fight. You lose. Good morning from left after breakfast. Okay, everyone, that's it for this episode. Thanks for your company. Thanks for the ride. See you next week. Same time, same place. Until then, cheerio and ciao from Left After Breakfast. (laughs) 